If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Ever since the Greeks supposedly hid inside a wooden horse to sneak into Troy, states across the world have been engaged in clandestine activities. From election rigging to sabotage and assassination, historian Rory Cormack told Rhiannon Davis about the shadowy secrets of covert action. So to start us off then, Rory, what is covert action? We're talking about the kind of secret statecraft of meddling in the affairs of others. It's about using spies, using special forces to manipulate, to shape. And that's where it's different from your standard intelligence, which is about watching and listening. It's quite passive. Whereas the covert action side of things, the clues in the name, action, you're getting out there, you're shaping, you're meddling. Now that might be through propaganda. It might be through fixing an election, engineering a coup, arming rebels, all the way up to the most controversial of all, which of course is assassination. And where the secrecy comes in is the the sponsor's hand is what is hidden. The actual event, the outcome is quite visible, unlike a, a normal intelligence operation where no one's ever going to know that it happened. No one's ever going to know that spy was there. In covert action, the government will change if that's the aim, or someone may die, or a war will happen, something will get blown up. You can't hide that. What's secret is the role of the state in sponsoring those those operations. And how far back in history, then, can we trace covert action? We tend to associate it mostly with the Cold War and the CIA, but this goes back for as long as states have existed. It goes back since before the CIA existed, since before the American state existed. It went back to before even the United Kingdom existed. There's a wonderful example back from the um, 16th century, I think, where Queen Elizabeth I is talking about using covert means. And I mean that in the in the ye olde English way of M-E-A-N-E-S spelling, ye covert means, to support rebels who were fighting the Spanish in the Low Countries. And what Elizabeth was doing was um, secretly sending money and supplies to mercenaries. And that's, a, I think that's quite a, quite a, a modern idea, but centuries and centuries ago, in the Victorian era, we know that Lord Palmerston was covertly sending money and some weapons to Sicilian rebels fighting um, in Italy, much to Queen Victoria's anger, as it turned out. But this is this is a standard part of statecraft. It's not just the the Americans. It's not just the Brits. And what I found particularly surprising writing this book is the global nature of this and how many different states engaged in these in these dark arts over literally centuries. Because mm, we can trace it right back to the ancient world as well, can't we? 
Well, most, yeah, famous examples of, of deception going back to, to Iliad and Trojan horses and all, and, all, and all this kind of thing. It's about states basically being sneaky and trying to meddle and shape events without anyone knowing they're doing it. And then that, as an idea, is incredibly old. Now, it, it gets formalized and you have your machinery and your bureaucracies after World War II. But the actual principle, I mean, it, yeah, it predates the existence of states. And why do you think it is then for something that has lasted so long in our history, the public tends to have a misconception of what covert action actually is? Two words, and those two words are James Bond. (laughs) (laughs) Well, the funny thing is, is because it's secret statecraft, so the, the the files are highly classified, it's all very sensitive, and therefore there's a, a vacuum in our knowledge of this kind of thing. That vacuum gets filled by popular culture, by James Bond, by Jason Bourne, and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but obviously that um, misrepresents the reality in, in, in quite a uh, substantial way. Uh, obviously, MI6 does not have a, a license to kill. Obviously, SIS officers don't go around, um, you know, working their way around the the world in fast cars, drinking cocktails, and generally being uh, awful sociopathic misogynists. Um, but Bond wouldn't get a job in MI6 uh, today, that's for sure. Um, but that myth has has taken hold, and people see this idea of intelligence services as as rogue elephants is one of the one of the jargon words rogue elephants rampaging around the world doing their own thing when actually the reality I and mean, it's much more political control obviously which in a democracy is a good thing uh, there are much more lawyers that's for sure when you think, when these things get approved uh, there are committees and, and layers and layers of lawyers to make sure that um, things are being followed appropriately but it's it's the the absence of official records, the fact that these things are you know, told through stories, they are easily mythologized. Um, they are they can be quite dramatic, talking about rebels and secret wars and even assassinations. But what I find particularly striking is the the popular perception hones in on the assassinations, the secret wars, the sabotage, the things that go bang. Um, because they're the more visible ones. It's the things glamorised in in James Bond, but even outside of James Bond. Newspapers, books, films write about things that go bang in the night, whereas the vast majority of covert operations today and historically are influence operations, are propaganda. They are intangible, and they're more difficult to represent in a a really exciting way, I think. Um, So that's another way in which public perceptions of, of covert actions get skewed. And then the third way, I think, on top of the bond, on top of the bangs, is we know more about the ones that have failed. Because if something was supposed to be secret and is still secret uh, and was a success, then then it will still be secret. So historians like me don't know about it and can't know about it. The ones that get exposed, that went wrong, that have been public inquiries, been newspaper reports, uh, been you know, histories, leaks, um, that's the ones that tend to get written about. So again, that skews public perception uh, as well. So maybe historians like me are just, <laughs> just fools biting off more than they can chew to grapple with this subject, which I love. I find it so interesting. But it's a subject where the files are classified. There's so much mythologization. Um, and to be honest, <laughs> it's a nightmare to research. It's a fun nightmare, but it can be a nightmare. 
So how then do you go about researching something that is, by its essence, secret? Well, some things are uh, unclassified. To be fair to the Americans, they have uh, avowed in the uh, legal jargon, they have uh, admitted to uh, around 50 or so covert actions post-1945. And quite a few CIA documents are now now declassified uh, and are online. Britain, on the other hand, is much more secretive. MI6 files are all classified from about 1950-odd onwards. Um, Special Forces files are all classified from a similar time, which does make life difficult. But there's a couple of ways around it. The first one is um, going to America, which is a very ridiculous way of thinking about it. I mean, but I have flown to America to research British history because the files are a bit more open over there, which um, is both a great expense and not great and not great for the planet um to try to to try and do british history um and the other way around is what we it's basically to to be honest it's not very glamorous it's sitting in the national archives going through files and files of really boring minutes to try and find those little snippets to stick together into a big a big picture treasury files are often quite good utterly utterly boring but if you want to know something you follow the money and they'll pop up pop up there. Where there's a will, there's a way. It's fun, but it's tricky. Definitely. And in that course of that research, then trawling through those minutes, have you uncovered any any operations or initiatives that were previously secret? The British have just declassified a whole range of propaganda operations from the 1960s and 70s and even into the early 1980s. Uh, the book... I set out to try and do a a, a global approach. And what surprised me was learning about how many different countries have engaged in this stuff, like from Egypt, for example, sponsoring Ethiopian rebels back in the 1950s. You know, we we don't think of that. We always think of of CIA and and the British. But there is some stuff on on the UK. There's plenty of stuff on the UK in the book. And the the biggest thing that, that that we found was these these propaganda files and it turns out that britain had a much more substantial uh, black propaganda program than historians like like me realized and by which we mean black propaganda is material with a false source falsely attributed material and what we found is essentially about 300 odd operations where the uk either created fake groups uh, or to spread propaganda, or they forged uh, hostile groups to spread propaganda. And the reason was simple. The reason was Britain wanted to expose Soviet activities in post-imperial Africa, for example, when decolonization was at its height and the Soviets were starting to move into what was traditionally a British and French sphere of influence. And this sparked a big propaganda battle. But the British knew that if they put out some pamphlets or whatever stamped Her Majesty's government, the people reading them would take it with a pinch of salt, you know? Not, it's not going to cause, it's not going to change their opinion, their, their behaviours. So they thought, well, to be credible, we need to be covert. We need to do black propaganda. We need to create a false attribution. And uh, I can give you a couple of examples. They created a, a fake group in um, what's supposed to be Francophone Africa, called the Freedom of Africa Movement, never existed. 
And they, this, this group was writing, um, I say writing in inverted commas, pamphlets about you know, exposing nationalist leaders, exposing um, deals between nationalists and the Soviets, um, and trying to you know, whip people up into, into uh, fervor against the Soviets. Um, they did that for quite a lot of the 1960s. And in fact, into the 1980s, there was another group in the early 1980s called the African Union. Again, didn't exist, different from the current African Union. Didn't exist and um, was written by people in the Foreign Office trying to expose Soviet misdeeds. And then slightly more controversially, perhaps, the British also forged uh, some documents by uh, Russian press agencies, by... Um, Chinese news agencies, and most controversially of all, by the Muslim Brotherhood. And there's about four or five examples where Britain is ex- using the Muslim Brotherhood to try to expose uh, misdeeds, particularly by uh, Arab leaders like Nasser of Egypt, who, of course, is a, a bete noir of the British around the 1950s and 1960s. Um, and he had used chemical gas in the civil war in Yemen in the 1960s. And Britain wanted people to know this. But they also know that if they said, we, the British government, are telling you that NASA used chemical weapons, um, that the people they wanted to believe that would, would dismiss it, the lying Brits. Uh, in this case, it was true. He, he had. So what they did is they, they, they forged a Muslim Brotherhood document um, denouncing NASA as being a bad Muslim, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, to try and convince that target audience that he was... He was using uh, chemical weapons. Uh, but in doing so, and this is where it gets quite controversial, in doing so, and it surprised me, they had to use very aggressive language because that's how the Muslim Brotherhood wrote. And they were very aggressive um, people in terms of their uh, kind of extreme language. And the document, for credibility purposes, was, was littered with anti-Semitic references and criticisms of Israel. And the British justification of this was, we're not lying here. We're just trying to be credible. Um, but in doing so, it inadvertently was whipping up um, anti-Semitism. And I found that quite striking when I read it in the, in the archives. I think there's an important point here is that British propaganda doesn't generally tend to lie in terms of, I mean, there's a few exceptions, but it doesn't tend to lie. It uses fake sources to make things um, make things credible. But then, I don't want to go down too much down the, the philosophy of truth route, but how, how does that fake source then impact upon the interpretation of the of the truth, if you like? It's, it becomes a philosophical minefield. But those propaganda documents uh, were honestly jaw-dropping when when I was reading them uh, down at Q. And, and, and uh, yeah, and we covered them a bit in the book. And you mentioned that British sources don't tend to lie. Which countries do tend to lie? Which countries specialise in disinformation? The most famous example from history is probably the Soviet Union's AIDS lie, known as Operation Denver, when in 1983, what they did was they planted a news story in an Indian newspaper, which accused the Americans of creating the uh, HIV AIDS virus in uh, in a biological warfare lab in in Maryland, and gradually over time, this uh, news article got picked up by different places in different papers, and it, it travelled. It travelled quite slowly, but it travelled. Uh, and of course, this was a lie. It was an outrageous lie, but it it gained momentum and ended up. It's still you can still 
see it manifesting itself in dark recesses of the internet, even even today. And it's quite hard to shake off, even though the Soviets eventually acknowledged this and I think apologized uh, at the end of the Cold War. The damage was done. It's very difficult to get that genie back in the box. I mean, that's probably the most the most famous example from the Cold War of a of a big lie. So with this grey area in covert action then, is it fair to say that the ends justify the means? No. And different countries have different approaches to this. Britain, for example, is comparatively restrained. And there's a big debate about, well, is it appropriate for democracies to be engaging in secret statecraft, essentially? And I think, and it's my own personal opinion, when the ends, the ends can justify the means, um, there's a, there's, because it's such a, a broad spectrum, it's difficult to like make big generalized cases because you know, propaganda is very different from assassinating a foreign leader. But even with that, in the 1970s, a couple of members of Labour's government made that very point that the end would justify the means if MI6 were to assassinate um, Idi Amin in Uganda, a genocidal maniac doing a horrible, horrible, uh, horrible, horrible business. And they said, well, surely it's better to bump him off. MI6 were very firm in, and said, no, we, uh, we, we don't do those, those kind of things. So these debates do come up from time to time. I think, again, personal opinion, I think there is, there is a role for, for covert action. It is an important part of state's arsenal if it is done in a responsible, proportionate uh, manner, uh, and if it is designed to achieve you know, publicly known goals. I think having separate policies where the foreign office is doing one thing and MI6 is doing the complete opposite, that's obviously very, very dodgy. But if MI6 is working covertly to achieve the same goals the foreign office are working for, then um, personally, I think that's that's more reasonable. Uh, but I should I should add that uh, Britain has no no track record to speak of of assassinating foreign leaders. We, we think about assassinations, we think about this CIA back in the 50s and 60s and uh, crazy stories trying to kill um, Cuba's leader, Fidel Castro, things like, I mean, some of these didn't leave the drawing room floor, uh, but uh, exploding seashells, um, poison wetsuits, um, poison milkshakes, exploding cigars, the list is, is long and outrageous and in some ways crazier than the most crazy Bond film. Uh, that's where the kind of fact and fiction does it does blur sometimes in the in the world of covert operations. Um, but Britain doesn't have that that track record. They, there were there was discussion about potentially killing Nasser of Egypt in the nineteen fifties. There was a killing in Lumumba, uh, Patrice Lumumba in the Congo. In Congo, uh, one official mentioned that, but it didn't come to anything. And the, the examples are very are very few and far between. And yet, compare that to say the Soviets. Um, who assassinated the the Afghan um, leader before the Soviet-Afghan War in the 1980s. Um, other countries, shall we say, have a more liberal approach to, to assassination. Um, so even though all states engage in aspects of covert action, they do so to very different degrees. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. A well-placed and well-timed sabotage can do a disproportionate amount of damage and impact. Famously in the First World War with Lawrence of Arabia and his band of irregular fighters blowing up Turkish railway lines.
This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. And continuing to think about assassination then, if a country does, let's say, assassinate a, a prime minister, a president, does that tend to have the long-term consequences thereafter? In a word, no. I think when you look at examples of covert action leading to regime change, there's a few different um, tools you can use. You can try and do electoral interference, you can try and stage a coup, or you could just try and bump off the leader. Now, let's just park ethical issues for, for one side. Obviously, very, very important, but think about it in a purely practical sense. Um, it doesn't work. There are no examples of covert sponsorship of assassination leading to what the sponsoring state would want now because there there are, there are, there's a two-stage process the first is you've got to kill the head of state which as fidel castro demonstrated is very difficult and then secondly even if you manage to kill the head of state you've then got to have this long-term shift in policy towards what you wanted and when the americans were discussing killing castro back in the the 60s, they, they kind of recognised that even if they managed to kill Fidel Castro, they'd have to take out his, friend, his brother, Che Guevara, and a bunch of others to actually have any manageable change. And uh, no matter what uh, means of covert intervention, this longer-term unintended consequences is a real problem. So a famous example would be from electoral interference, less controversial than assassinating a head of state. But in 1964, the Americans rigged, essentially, the election in British Guyana. The, the leader, a guy called Chadi Jagan, they saw as a hardcore committed Marxist um, bad guy need, needed to be removed. So they spent a lot of money helping foment a, a general strike, propaganda, supporting the opposition party. And eventually a guy called Forbes Burnham got elected. And Americans are, are delighted. They got rid of this awful Marxist and they got this, this more, in theory, pliable pro-Western uh, opponent. Unfortunately, over the next 10, 15 years or so, Burnham moves very much into the Soviet camp and does all the policies which the Americans didn't want um, Jagan to do back in 1964. And there are so many examples of this where a covert operation has brought about a leader that the sponsoring state wanted, but they're their own people. And I think it's, it's dangerous to overestimate the success of the hidden hand and the agency of the CIA and, and others, um, because ultimately things are very messy and it's difficult to get, it's very difficult to get that, um, that long-term change. Certainly. And how can the sponsoring state then try and pre-guess the, the person they're sponsoring, say the rebel, what their agenda is? What, what means can they have of gathering intelligence, say, to figure out what it is they want to achieve? 
You're exactly right. It's about gathering intelligence. This is this is the key. You cannot uh, do this without outstanding intelligence. And when it comes to sponsoring rebels, states will need to know, okay, who are these rebels? What do they want? What would they do if they're in power? Do their values align with ours? Um, if they don't, is it a, a, re- a reasonable marriage of convenience, um, which Thailand found out to its cost in the 1980s when it was sponsoring, working with elements linked to the Khmer Rouge in, in Cambodia in a horrible co-action there? Sounds, sounds quite blunt and mercenary, but one of the key questions is, can they win? Are they willing to fight and to die for this cause? And I've seen numerous intelligence reports where they're asking these these questions. There's a, there's a rebel group in, in Yemen, for example, in the 1960s. Um, do we give them money? Hmm, that's a, you know, there's, there's cost there. There's huge political risk if it comes out. You know, you're covertly intervening in the internal affairs of someone else. This is, this is a big deal, and states don't take this lightly. Um, so therefore, would it be a complete waste of money and political capital if this group, they're useless and they're not bothered and they, they don't want to win anyway? So there's all sorts of, uh, of, of really big questions. And sometimes it can go horribly, horribly wrong. In um, the early 1990s, for example, I think it was Rwanda and Uganda uh, covertly sponsored some rebels in Congo and it worked. Their, their leader became the, the, the new leader. And then within months, he turned his forces on, surprise, surprise, Rwanda and Uganda. And so this, this stuff can be very, sh- very short term. But what's interesting is historically, leaders get seduced by the short term games. They, they are in a difficult position. They, you know, they want something doing, but they can't go to war because war is very expensive and potentially cataclysmically awful because they, they can't do it politically because you know you can't meddle in the affairs of someone else and the United Nations doesn't like imperial neo-imperial meddling. So leaders get seduced by this and they're quite a short-term perspective anyway. And there are so many op- so many examples where, where a president or a prime minister just sees this, this magic bullet of covert action and says, you know, MI6, CIA, fix this for me. I wanted to ask you about sabotage and why that has historically been popular as a form of covert action. Sabotage uh, has historically been popular because it's a, a means to disrupt, to degrade, to destroy a target. It's a means to force multiply something else. So you don't have to go to, to war. It's cheaper. You don't have to go to war. You don't have to... Um, risk everything if you can just, and I use just very, very loosely, but if you can just blow something up, I mean, it, it's, it keeps the threat at a manageable level. If you can sabotage, to give a contemporary example, the Iranian nuclear weapons program, you know, that, that, that prevents that threat from uh, getting bigger. And this has always been the case. So a well-placed and well-timed sabotage can do a disproportionate amount of damage and impact. And famously in the First World War with Lawrence of Arabia and his band of irregular fighters blowing up Turkish railway lines. And that was deemed very useful. In the Second World War with the Special Operations Executive, who were Britons fighting behind enemy lines, blowing stuff up, um, secret unit 
that they were working with resistance groups to, for example, blow up you know, bridges, even sabotage uh, Nazi heavy water plants in Norway to prevent them from gaining nuclear weapons. So it's it's preventative. And this idea, I think, transcends history. So whether it's Lawrence of Arabia blowing up a, an Ottoman railway line in the First World War, or whether it is a cyber attack blowing up or, or sabotaging uh, Israeli centrifuges in the 21st century. The idea is the same. And I think that's um, why history is so important in understanding the present is because the, the principles are the same. You are using secret means to disrupt, to degrade, and to destroy. Right? And there are, there are, there are countless um, examples. One of the more dodgy ones, I think, is something called Operation Embarrass, which was a sabotage operation done by the Brits. Uh, and the name's kind of apt because it is a bit embarrassing looking back as a, as a Brit, which was uh, an immediate aftermath of the Second World War. There was a load of illegal immigration of Jews going from refugee camps in Italy to Palestine, at which point Britain was responsible for. And this illegal immigration was creating challenges for the Attlee administration in terms of um, conflicts and civil unrest going on in uh, in Palestine. And so they turned to MI6 to sabotage it. And what they did was it was some veterans from World War II zipping around the Mediterranean in little boats, planting um, mines on uh ships that were going to carry refugees. Now, this was not a, an assassination mission or anything like that because the, the ships were empty when the mines were were, were were blown up. But they destroyed about three ships, I think. And looking back, you know, you think of what the, the horrors that those populations had, had gone through and Britain going around sabotaging the ships to, to get them to to Palestine. Um, but then that's just again another example. There, there are there are so many. Uh, but once again, the, the aim is to try and resolve an intractable problem in a way that just, just keeps that threat uh, down at a, a manageable level. And throughout the course of our conversation, listeners might think that um, covert action would involve two countries, so the sponsoring state and the country that they are hoping to conduct covert action in. But something that I found so intriguing was how many countries can involve themselves in in one area and you talk about the invasion of afghanistan in the 1980s how many foreign influencers were trying to push their own agendas here and how were they going about it loads and i think this is one of the the big myths around it is it's it's cia or it's russia or the soviets or it's um it's the brits whereas afghanistan is a great example because um yes it was the cia but it was also working alongside the Brits, the Chinese, the um, Pakistanis, um, the Egyptians, if I remember correctly. The French might have been knocking about. There's a there's a whole web, a kind of playground of covert operators, and trying to manage that just it, oh, it's the most intricate diplomacy when different countries want to sponsor different groups. So you have um, the Brits initially were quite keen on. Uh, as Brits tend to be, on an, an ex-prince or an ex-king or something like that. Uh, we always try to sponsor the royalists, whereas um, 
Pakistan was more inclined to sponsor uh, extremist Islamist factions. Um, the Americans are trying to balance all these different things. The Americans are going through Pakistan. Pakistan are siphoning off money and having agency about who to fund. It just it creates all sorts of um, intricate problems. And it's again, it's similar um, over the last you know, fifteen years or so. The uh, operations in Syria, which the Americans were involved in wasn't just the Americans, it's, it's Turkey are involved and Jordan are involved and all sorts of, of, other, of other states with different, uh, with different uh, rebel groups, different uh, factions, different interests, and trying to coordinate that when it's supposed to be secret. It's, oh my goodness, it's international politics at its most delicate and to finish our conversation, I want to go back to something that you mentioned earlier that I was really intrigued by, which is this idea that the present of covert action isn't that different from the past. Because I'm sure a lot of listeners will think about the internet, social media, and how that might have transformed covert action. Would you say then that it's just the same means, just through a different medium? The historian, the, the historian in me says, uh, yeah, it's not, it's not that different. There have, of course, been some big changes brought around by the, the digital era. They increased the, the scale and the size and the speed of uh, propaganda through, disseminated, as you say, through social media. There are now so many different platforms that you can try and manipulate and intervene, which actually makes it more difficult. I mean, if you compare that to the 1950s, 1960s, when to reach a, a country, you just had to, I say, just get one or two newspapers. Now you need, everyone's a, a citizen journalist, everyone's a blogger, everyone's got Twitter. So it's much more difficult to control a single narrative. But you see uh, states like Russia allegedly just spamming all sorts of different narratives and, and hoping for the best. So that speed and scale is is new. It's much more intense, I think, than it, than it was Whereas in the Cold War, it took a long time for operations to to develop the the um, HIV AIDS lie. You know, it started in eighty three and it developed very slowly. Whereas now it's just bang, 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 very quickly onto the next narrative. It just spreads more confusion. But and I think this is a really important point: the principles behind all of this are pretty static, and they have been for hundreds of years. States use propaganda to exploit divisions in society. Now, those divisions might be, as we've heard today, around immigration, around Brexit, around um, whatever. But it's the same principle. In the Cold War, those schisms were around relationship between Moscow and satellite states, for example, or communism and Islam in the Middle East, or nationalism and communism in, in Africa. Propaganda is about finding these schisms and smashing them wide open. And that's always been the case. Um, covert action is about pushing history along. It's about trying to um, shape events in a plausibly deniable manner. And that's the same today as it ever has been. So I would strongly argue that we need not get too het up about this, the cyber age and cyber attacks and as if that's this kind of revolutionary thing. Cyber attacks are just propaganda, sabotage, um, political influence, the same things that states have been doing for a very long time, just taking place in a new medium. That was Rory Cormack. His new book, How to Stage a Coup, 
is published by Atlantic and available to buy now. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Jack Bateman. 